0: at orderct.com slash easter24.
1: You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the
0: sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan. Get ready, because for roughly the next hour or so... There's going to be plenty of Wade and I being excellent to each other.
1: We're going to be excellent to each other. We're going to be excellent to Abraham Lincoln. And we're going to be excellent in Chinatown?
0: Uh, I think that the the Bill and Ted phrase that fits that would be more most heinous. Listeners, today
1: on the show, we review the newest film in the Bill and Ted saga. Bill and Ted Face the Music.
0: We're also going to be taking our Summer of Darkness film noir series into neo-noir territory with our review of the classic film, Chinatown. We're gonna rock your ears off, and maybe your nose off,
1: in this episode, episode 262 of Seeing and Believing. Hey,
0: Death. Well, if it isn't a wild stallion! Have you come to sue me again? No, Death. Not at all. We just need to talk to you, Death. Talk to the hand.
1: Listeners, that is a clip from Bill and Ted Face the Music. We're going to jump into our review here in a moment. And later on, we're going to continue our Summer of Darkness, as Kevin mentioned in the introduction, with Roman Polanski's Chinatown. And Kevin we were talking about puns and things like that and I felt like we did a pretty good job of referencing both films in our introduction. It was it was stellar work today.
0: I think we did quite well also and we did it without, you know, going to the, you know, tried and true quotes that everybody knows from Chinatown you went for a deeper cut with your mm-hmm. uh, with your nose <laughs> on toe.
1: So. No, no, there it is. It it, it, it that works perfectly to continue uh, this tradition. Yeah, I'm excited about talking about Chinatown to jump into Neo Noir and continue our Summer of Darkness. It's been it's been great, and I'm excited to talk about this movie. This week's episode, however, com- this, week's episode, however comm- this week's episode, however, commences with our look. And the third film in the Bill and Ted trilogy, Dean Parasot's Bill and Ted Face the Music. Here's the movie's official synopsis. The stakes are higher than ever for the time-traveling exploits of William Bill S. Preston Esquire, played by Alex Winter, and Theodore Ted Logan, played by Keanu Reeves. Yet to fulfill their rock-and-roll destiny, the now-middle-aged best friends set out on a new adventure when a visitor from the future warns them that only their song can save life as we know it. Along the way, they'll be helped by their daughters, a new batch of historical figures, and a few music legends to seek the song that will set the world right and bring harmony in the universe. Kevin, uh, we were talking about this off the air last week. Neither of us before the last seven days, had seen any of the Bill and Ted films, which made our homework for this episode a bit bodacious. Now, after having caught up on the series, I want to ask you this. What do you think of Bill and Ted as a whole? Do you find their journey across these films uh, to be excellent? Or perhaps a little, get this, bogus? (laughs)
0: <laughs> Strong words indeed to use bogus of Bill and Ted. You know, it, it it's funny. I watched, you know, I, I did my due diligence. I, I watched the two earlier films before jumping into this this latest installment. And, you know, I found them to be very very uh i don't know likable films i guess which isn't necessarily the same thing as being good i think that th- you, it's it's hard to you know scoff at two uh film heroes as good-natured as wild stallions right they it's just they're 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 good guys they they're a little bit dim but they're they're fun to hang around with I I thought the the two earlier films kind of seemed uh, they, they were a little bit slapdash, especially the first one felt almost more like a series of ske- sketches, sort of like a almost like in one of those SNL movies that you know kind of has a bunch of scenarios but doesn't really have a good way to tie them all together. That's kind of what Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure felt like to me, at least watching it here in the year of our Lord. 2020 so while i like bill and ted i i wasn't sure that i liked the movies that surrounded them quite as much but with this third installment i think for whatever reason and we can maybe talk about why this might be i actually had a really good time with the movie i think it might be the strongest of the entire trilogy so far and i think a lot of that has to do with uh Partly just the history that these two characters have, have built up, not just in terms of literal history, but just how we know these characters so much better and how the film plays off of the affection that's kind of grown up around them. But I also just think in in general, it's a it's a tighter film, not tighter in the sense that the, the plot is, is very tight. I mean, it's kind of as as always, but there's something about the filmmaking here that feels a little bit more cohesive. And I don't know, I think that there's more of an actual story in this film, which I appreciate after kind of the relative plotlessness of of the original. So I don't know, I enjoyed, I had a good time with this one. And going in as somebody who is a little bit skeptical about the, the merits of returning to bill and ted after so many years i think that's saying quite a lot i'm curious to know what your take was though
1: (laughs) yeah no it was it was actually a lot of fun uh i I think i'd seen the start of the first film years and years and years ago but uh that was it. don't really remember much So it was fun to sit back and watch all three films within the course of a week and i'm like you i i like these guys, I like the movies, and I was trying to categorize them in my mind as I was just reviewing the series. And th- there's this almost subgenre of comedy that I, I call, and, and maybe other people call it too, I don't know, stupid comedy. And it's not that the films are stupid, it's that the characters are kind of dim-witted, they're not very intelligent, and usually they're pretty they're pretty pompous and self-absorbed. And most of the conflict in the film comes from that self-absorption or that unintelligence. So I'm thinking of something like Hot Rod or Dumb and Dumber. Not bad movies. Funny movies. Good movies. Uh, stupid comedies. Whenever I think of Bill and Ted, they, they seem to be in a different class. Uh, there, there are runovers, but these individuals, they don't need to overcome their character flaws. And their unintelligence... I don't even know if it gets in the way. They don't need to change. It's not that these characters are at point A and they need to go to point B. There's a little bit of that in this final film, and maybe that's why you you like it the best. Um, but mostly they're just being pushed along by this goofy plot. And so the fun of the series is watching these silly guys be goofy, and the films work best when they lean into that goofiness. And I, I i thought the first film did that well. Uh, the second film, I probably thought about that one more than uh, all, all the others just because it gets so goofy and weird towards the end. You have heaven and hell and, and station, and station can become a big station. And it deviates so far from that first movie. I, we don't actually see the characters... Uh, time travel we see the villains time travel and we know that they time travel to kind of get things going at the end of the movie but we don't see it happening they go they go to hell they go to heaven they die it's just kind of random and that overflows into this movie i i think this film does uh does so well when it leans into that weirdness and like you said the plot it doesn't i don't know if i would get to the end of the movie and be like oh yeah that makes sense or the plot necessarily works because of x y and z. We just have fun with these characters and they're on a quest and we like being with them. So, I I like you uh I I like this movie. Not as much as probably the other two, but I but I did like this film.
0: Yeah, you know, it it's not so much that this this film's plot makes any sense at all because it really doesn't. And uh and i think that's that's part of its charm uh the i think my problem with the the earlier films or at least uh, particularly the first one is that it didn't it, it almost was plotless like they they kind of have uh this conflict about needing to pass their history exam, and then it kind of gets into we have you know, we have all these we have to gather all these historical figures, and then it moves into the historical figures are lost in San Dimas and we have to go round them up in a mall and just kind of skips from thing to thing and and you know is intermittently amusing in the in those various vignettes, but I didn't really feel like there was a whole lot of connective tissue that made it feel like it was anything more than the the screenwriter and the director kind of just deciding what might be interesting to see at any given moment. And I think indeed the uh, the first the first film I found amusing. I don't know if I really laughed out loud that much at it. I had some pretty good laughs while watching Bill and Ted Face the Music, and I think. Part of that is uh, the new characters. We get to meet Bill and Ted's uh, two daughters, uh, Billy and Thea, so that's fun. But it's also, this film really benefits from the history that has accumulated over time and, and the way that we're familiar with these characters now. I especially really appreciate how, especially watching these movies back to back to back uh, I really enjoy what Keanu Reeves does, just with his acting. He he acts with his entire body as Ted. Every every line he delivers, he kind of moves his shoulders like he's trying to, you know, just step into the lines that he's reading. Ted just kind of has this head shake where he's just he's just manfully striving to be the most excellent dude he can be. And I think seeing that. Uh, from a much older Keanu Reeves, and also seeing that from uh, the actress who plays his daughter who's kind of doing an impersonation of Keanu Reeves from the first movie is just a lot of fun and tremendously winning and charming.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you bring up his performance. And I think Alex uh, Winter is, is good here. But there's, there's an extra layer layer to Reeves' performance because it's not a, a duplicate of the first two films. He certainly feels like a character who has gotten older, and so he takes some of the mannerisms and he he adds a mature edge to them. Uh, but it's, it's not like the character has changed all that much. So there's just these little touches here and there that I think uh, they work uh, well, and that helps the very beginning of the film. I I felt like the first little bit is a a bit perfunctory. Okay, we meet the characters, we figure out where they are and and what's happened in life Um, but it really cranks up when it gets strange and it gets goofy and it gets weird and at one point uh, they meet each other in prison and that's an amazing scene and then they talk to each other as older people and it's just all that it's so wonderful and weird and there's just something about characters who aren't the brightest bulbs uh, and yet we just – we we really do love them and care for them. And um, th- there's an earnest quality, I think, to the series and to see the family uh, being brought together. And then too, I, I mentioned character development. This film probably does have the most because these individuals have grown up. And this is a trait that we see in a lot of sequels that come out a good deal after the originals and and that's life didn't necessarily go like we wanted it to. There really wasn't this happily ever after and so they have to make do with that and they're trying really, really hard to produce a hit and to change the world. And there's there's just enough there uh, to make you really feel for their plights. And so it, it that part doesn't feel perfunctory. Uh, and I appreciate kind of that that journey, even though it, it's it's not a huge journey, but it's a little bit within their characters.
0: yeah, well the the parts that I liked that, that at least personally amused me the most about uh, the first film is the part where Bill and Ted kind of interact with themselves and, and they kind of have this this weird interplay where they see their their past selves or their future selves as, some uh, as somebody other than who they are like they're (laughs) they are you know they they refer to them as the us's but they don't really seem to see you know ted doesn't see future ted as himself it's more like a different person and when this film kind of takes that and moves with it into more of a I mean, contemplative is the wrong word for a Bill and Ted movie, but it moves with it into territory that feels appropriate for two most excellent dudes who are kind of move, moving on with their lives and trying to mature in a way that feels true to themselves. I, I felt like that's an example of how this film combines both uh, really great comedy bits with something that feels a little bit you know, less like just a bit and more like something that has had some some thought and heart put into it. And I, I guess that's part of the reason why I found more to appreciate in this film in, in this installment than I did in in some of the other installments. I just think that there's just a, a really great balance between uh silliness and genuine feeling and also delivering the you know the history shenanigans that are kind of the bread and butter of the Bill and Ted franchise in the first place.
1: <laughs> yeah, and having having fun with that. And as I was watching this movie and the others, there there's nothing, uh, there's nothing much in the way of of just technicality. So there's not a technical mastery that that feels like it's running across this series or even this film. But the movie understands what the story is about, and I appreciate appreciate how in each one, and especially this one, uh, they allow the special effects to be a bit cheesy, and to be a bit odd, and it it feels right for these characters. It feels right for this movie, and the history behind this movie. And so I'm, I'm glad to be able to see these characters come back and have fun, and then too, watching someone like Keanu Reeves, who started out with Bill and Ted... That's has kind, of, kind of made him a name. And then we see him in the John Wick films. And then now we see him back as as, you know, in this film. And, and there's just this strange sort of balance with this character. And yet he has a lot of fun with it. And I I tend to believe, too, that all this love the last couple of years for Keanu Reeves is what brought about this sequel. So we can be happy for a couple of things, uh, you know, in 2020
0: yeah uh you know i am not as much of a keanu reeves apologist as as some people are but i did really gain a new appreciation for him as as a craftsman partly because of this performance it i just think he he knows how to evoke ted without you know just kind of feeling like he's doing an impression of his younger self, if that makes sense. This feels like it's the same person, it's just somebody who's much, much older, and that helps this film feel less like kind of a, a sequel cash-in in some in the way that some other reboots of beloved 80s franchises have felt. And it feels much more like, okay, I this this film kind of justifies itself. And that's not easy to do with a franchise that at least on at first glance would lend itself really well to kind of just being a, a cash in where everybody just sort of cashes their paychecks and, and you know puts in the work and then goes home. I feel like more more thought went into this and the fun is still there and the 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 weird inventiveness is also still there. And I don't know, I think combining all of that with the overall feeling of Bill and Ted sort of trying to grow up and, and move into the next phase of their most excellent lives, I guess, I, I feel like that really it, it ends up really working for me.
1: That's great. Uh, listeners, Bill and Ted Face the Music is currently available to rent or own. If you've seen the film, we would love to hear your, hopefully, I would say, excellent thoughts. You can tweet us at C Believe Pod, at C Believe Pod. You can also email us, seeing and believing, CAPC at gmail.com. Kevin, we're going to get a little bit darker. I, I don't want to put a damper on the episode. We're going to get a little bit darker. We're going to be looking at Polanski's Chinatown as our Summer of Darkness Noir Marathon continues. Don't go anywhere, listeners. We'll be back in just a bit. Listeners, that song is Bon Voyage by Mad Bello. We are so thankful for you who have chosen to support us a lot of different ways to support the podcast. One of them is via our Patreon campaign. Hop on over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. A lot of great perks for our Patreon members, supporters, and one of our favorite donation levels. We say this every week, but it truly comes from the heart. Is the what can you buy for five dollar level?
0: And Kevin, I I was was
1: wondering, uh, what could someone buy for five bucks?
0: Uh, Five bucks would get you uh, an attachable ponytail. So if you want to be a little bit more excellent, but you don't want to actually deal with the hassle of caring for some some good old uh, rock hair, rocker hair, then uh, you know something like a time-saving device. Like a ponytail would be a a good way to go about it.
1: Yeah, I mean that would save you a lot of time and energy. Do you remember when when we were younger, um,
0: the those were they called rat tails?
1: Were those those were the popular things? The little. Oh
0: man! Yeah, I do remember those. I remember wanting, (laughs) wishing that I I had one of those. I but I you know my parents I don't think let me do it, which you know. Our parents look out for us in ways <laughs> both great and small. And this is one of the great ways that they looked out for me. So yeah. thanks, Mom and Dad. You're the best.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. They, they, sometimes they know what we need more than we know what we need. So uh, yeah, now this is not one of those. This is a ponytail, which is much cooler, much more bodacious. So definitely check that out, listeners. You can also become a Patreon member for five bucks. As I mentioned a second ago, just hop on to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast.
0: Yeah, and five bucks isn't just for becoming a patron or for purchasing a ponytail to pay. You can also become a member of Christ and Pop Culture, which uh, not only gets you access to the members only forum, but also gets you access to periodic free offerings such as ebooks, free albums, stuff of that nature. And Wade, I'm excited because just uh, last week we came out with a new member offering from InterVarsity Press. It's a free ebook titled, Wait With Me, Meeting God in Loneliness, written by Jason Gaburi. And uh, editor Erin Straza wrote up a short piece on it on the website. She has this to say about it. She says, the trend toward loneliness was already on the rise before COVID-19 arrived, and now we're feeling it all the more acutely. All this makes the arrival of Jason Gaburi's Wait With Me, Meeting God in Loneliness, prescient. Gaburi shares his personal, persistent wrestling with loneliness, helping readers to do the same. By going the way with us, Gaburi lends courage. Staring down the beast of loneliness alone is not a task high on anyone's list, but facing it, entering into it, even finding it silver lining, is Gaburi’s invitation throughout the book. Page by page, we are encouraged to see these pockets of loneliness as places we can ask God to wait with us, meet with us, and make us more whole. So that sounds like a really timely member offering for those of us who are still, you know, social distancing, working from home, all of those things. Uh, I'm looking forward to checking that book out uh, more when I get a chance.
1: Yeah, I definitely want to check that out. A lot of great stuff on the site. And there's also another article I want to point our listeners to. If you're like me, the news of Chadwick Boseman's death was uh, just the the surprise. Uh, It's just just a tragedy, uh, knowing that we will never see him take on new roles in the future and uh, just feel sorry for for his family. And, uh, I really appreciate the article from CJ Kordelbaum on ChristInPopCulture.com. It's titled, Chadwick Bozeman Lived on Purpose and We Will Never Be the Same. Make sure to go and check that out as we really reflect on some of the great roles that Chadwick Bozeman took on just, uh, in his, in his short career. He, he really made a mark on uh, so many different individuals and across the film world. So uh, definitely check that out. And also make sure to support ChristinPopCulture.com because your support allows us to put articles like that up uh, every single week Hello, Claude. Where'd
0: you get the midget? You're a very nosy fellow, kitty-cat, huh? You know what happens to nosy fellows? Huh? No? Wanna guess? Huh? No? Okay. They lose their noses. Next time, you lose the whole thing. Cut it off and feed it to my goldfish. Understand?
1: Understand! I, I understand. I understand. All right.
0: It is time to put the, the air guitars to the side, and the uh, <laughs> SoCal lingo uh, is going to be replaced with some hard-bitten detective language, because we're going to jump into our noir series now.
1: Yeah, I uh I'm ready to jump back in. It's been uh it's been really great uh, talking about these films and uh Chinatown uh, deserves a conversation to say the least. <laughs>
0: Yeah. uh, Before we do jump into that conversation, we did want to take a quick moment, listeners, to acknowledge the elephant in the room about Chinatown's director. Uh, Obviously, uh, director Roman Polanski does have a history of sexual assault, and we didn't want to ignore or dismiss his crimes. And we went back and forth for a while when we were planning the series about whether we wanted to include Chinatown as, as part of discussion. Obviously, the question of what place in the film canon we allow for people like Polanski is a really thorny one, and we want to acknowledge that there's more than one valid way of approaching that issue, and uh, it's definitely a difficult question on both sides. Um, For purposes of our noir series, we ended up concluding that it's difficult, if not impossible, to discuss the history of film noir, and particularly neo-noir, without Chinatown coming into the conversation, even as we recognize that maintaining its place in the canon is arguably a moral compromise of sorts. In a weird way, Wade, this almost seems very appropriate for discussion of Chinatown simply as a film, as it deals with the moral compromises that Jack Nicholson's Jake Giddis makes as a private investigator and the moral rot that he slowly uncovers over the course of the film as he tracks down various leads surrounding the corruption surrounding the los angeles water supply and just what people will do and how evil they can get in order to pursue their own ends so wade i did want to Read a quote from Roger Ebert's Great Movies review. When he uh, talked about this in 2000, he had this to say about the film and its status as a neo noir. He writes Chinatown was seen as a neo noir when it was released, an update on an old genre. Now years have passed and film history blurs a little, and it seems to settle easily beside the original noirs. That is a compliment. So maybe we can start there as we get into this film, because it is the first neo-noir that we've talked about in this series so far. I wanted to get your thoughts on how rewatching it this time gave you perhaps a new perspective or a different perspective on uh, that classification of neo-noir and where you see Chinatown's place in the noir subgenre as a whole.
1: Yeah, no, that's a really... That's a really good question. This is the second time I've seen the film and it's it's always fascinating when you're when you're thinking about noir and you're really kind of in that world for a little bit to go back and watch this movie and see it within its historical context because I totally get what Ebert's saying that it it sort of bleeds together with some of the other films that we've we've talked about. Uh, but this is this one is is distinctly different and it feels it feels a little more pessimistic to me. So when you look at some of the noirs that we've talked about and uh, some of the ones we haven't talked about uh, you have a main character who seems to usually most of the time shrewdly influence the outcome or in some sense justice is served. So even something like Elevator to the Gallows like we talked about. uh, People are influenced by evil and the, their choices come back to haunt them, but their choices come back to haunt them because the universe still has a bent towards justice. In uh, something like Chinatown, uh, we really don't see that, that bent. Uh, instead, we see the, the dissolve of a would-be hero, of someone who wants to be a traditional hero and instead makes all the wrong choices. And it's, it's really just ironic because Polanski himself uh, for so long has really kind of gotten away with evil and, and that adds a new layer of subtext to this film because this is a film about people who get away with evil. Uh, so it, it's definitely uh, something that uh, is, is worth talking about and uh, as, as a whole just generally I think it's a very good film. I think it's a great film and I think it deserves to be up there with some of the great noirs uh, even though technically yeah it still is a neo-noir.
0: Yeah, I think the uh, the interesting thing about this film that I don't know that I really appreciated on first viewing uh, is how it kind of it seems to occupy this space where it's both almost a, a noir pastiche in a way, and also serves as just a straightforward, sturdy example of noir itself. And by by that I mean you know the the opening credits being very self-consciously a throwback to the you know the golden age of Hollywood the way that credits played in that era the the way that uh, Polanski almost seems to enjoy having his noir hero spend most of the film walking around with this giant bandage on his nose it, it's it's not a it, I I would be very surprised if. Humphrey Bogart would ever have allowed uh, one of his noir heroes to be portrayed in that way as getting beaten <laughs> up and spending the rest of the uh, the film with uh, a huge piece of gauze plastered to his schnoz. Like, that doesn't seem mm-hmm. like something that you'd see in a quote-unquote traditional noir. So in some ways, it does feel like Polanski is very self-consciously... Um, both like commenting on the the noir genre as a whole even as he also basically wants us to kind of settle into its rhythms as a straightforward noir and i think the the way that those two approaches kind of complement each other is is really interesting and makes this feel less like a, a a traditional noir and more like like its own thing, like a neo-noir.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as we're having this Polanski conversation too, I, I think we we definitely have to talk about the other factors that make this film great. I mean, obviously the direction is is almost perfect. I think in this film, I would also say like many people that the screenplay by Robert Towne is, is maybe a perfect screenplay. Now the mileage may vary in terms of how much you enjoy this film, but the screenplay is—I mean, it's incredible. It's something you could sit down and just kind of mark up and, and diagram. I mean, for for years. I mean, it's it's incredible. And Jack Nicholson is perfect here. He has the crazy—what uh, we see now is the t- crazy Tom Cruise smile. He's got the the charisma. He just has the whole package here. He plays a character that we genuinely feel for at the same time. We know he's he's not morally always on the right path. Uh, he's someone that seems to want to do good, while still messing up a bunch. I mean, there's there's just so much going on in this movie. So I'm 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 glad we're talking about it. It goes past just just a uh, Polanski, and and it's really kind of it's fascinating. Uh, Evil in this movie, and just how how rich that look at evil is, and the 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 turns that these characters make at the beginning of the movie, both of the main characters, Nicholson's character, Jake Dunaway's character, they all understand uh, evil in the world. They understand that they really can't do too much, right? their lives don't amount to a hill of beans to to quote another person who also stars a lot in a lot of norse and and yet they they do their own they go about trying to repress their desires for justice so uh jack nicholson at the beginning of the film he gives this speech uh, to the woman who comes in posing as someone else and is like basically like let sleeping dogs lie like you're never you're never gonna make things right so just don't rock the boat when she wants to uh have him uh, take pictures of her supposed husband having a affair uh, you have faye Dunaway's character we know we later learn she's experienced just incredible trauma she has this exterior her performance is just incredible here this calm exterior she realizes justice can't be done i just got to keep going on but then throughout the film the characters start to hope a little bit they start to say, well, maybe I can do something. And they realize that, you know, at the end, they can't. And it's just I think what frustrated me a little bit at first viewing is, is that Jack Nicholson's character, it's not that, that he doesn't do anything. It's that he makes the situation worse. And his plan is really bad. And I, I think the the way that, just the story, it's it's really perfect because you see what he's trying to do in the moment. He's so caught up in what's happening. He's trying to make a plan as he goes. And in in any other picture with uh, an individual like this, he would be the person who would shrewdly kind of make it work. There'd be a twist at the end. He knew what he was doing all along. He's the hero. This film dissolves that hero character. It dissolves a John Wayne character, even maybe a Humphrey Bogart character. Why? Because the, the hero doesn't exist uh they he could have made the situation better, but there is no way in this film for for him to bring about justice and that's that's what makes it kind of a difficult watch at times but but it's a really powerful point
0: you know i w- I was thinking about the um what what you're talking about about how the these characters kind of seem to have almost given up hope that um a better world is possible or or that there's There's a way to really affect true justice in the world around them. And I wonder if that's perhaps why this film continues to be regarded as such a strong film and why it continues to resonate is I I do feel like there's something very quintessentially 21st century about the, the feeling that there are just these vast societal forces at play all around us. And uh, we can try to be virtuous, you know, we can, we can recycle, we can try to make sure we turn off all the lights when we're not in the room, save energy, you know, buy a hybrid car. And yet, there's always this nagging feeling that it's not going to be enough, that the, our, our best efforts to be good, uh, good citizens of both our society and the world are just not quite enough. There, we, there, there's no way we can do enough. In order to really make a difference, and meanwhile, things seem to be getting worse and worse. And I mean, you know, that's that's not necessarily a new way of looking at the world, but it's one that I think is really distilled quite strongly in Chinatown. Just the this the sense that Jake Giddis, he 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 does kind of want to be good but he also knows that he can't really afford to be too good and you really see that for instance in the barbershop scene where he's kind of you know almost gloating a little bit over how his profile has risen because of the way that he uh broke the the case of the adultery that begins the film. He's kind of reading the headlines and, you know, feeling a little bit self-satisfied and his neighbor in the chair next to him takes him to task for a He's like, Oh, that's a really great way to make a living is to air people's dirty laundry and sort of just be a parasite on them that way. And, uh, Gittes's reaction to that is he's, he's extremely angry. He challenges the guy to a fight. He gets up in his face and, you get a sense that he's been genuinely stung by that comment because he kind of knows it's true and he doesn't want it to be true. And I don't know, I think that's, I, I, hate, I hate myself for using this phrase, but that's very hashtag relatable. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he makes
1: a living revealing the secrets of other people. And yet at the same time, he still prizes privacy. And And, and there's this uh, there, there's this back and forth there that I, that I think is there with it, with his character overall. And that's further reinforced by a number of uh, by a theme I think we've seen throughout most of these movies, and it's the idea of being watched or being seen. And of course, uh, we get the the individual at the end of the film uh, shot through the eye. Uh, we get a number of shots where Nicholson's character is taking photos. Uh, of people, and we we see their reflection in the camera lens, which are just a fantastic, uh, fantastic uh, shots. Uh, Jack Nicholson's character is in every single scene. This is strictly from his point of view, and then more than any of the classic Noirs, uh, this has a much more handheld shots, and so we we feel like we we are watching, we're observing. And within that, uh, we really get to kind of the underbelly of society, and even even the underbelly of each of us as individuals. How there there's darkness that kind of lingers everywhere, and it it's really great at the end when when John Huston's character, which I mean, the fact that John Huston is in this film when he is he's one of the the Godfathers of film noir uh, when he when he talks about at the end how. Everyone has the propensity to to evil. Uh we, we definitely we definitely see that and we see even good people make situations bad because of of their pride. And I think all that's really just 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 very rich. And then two. This is a very entertaining movie uh, to just kind of watch to unravel the mystery, kind of a who done it in a way to see at times the ingenuity of Nicholson's character when he puts the watch underneath the tire so he can see what time the individual left. I mean, there, there's a there's a lot going on, but but it is at, at just a purely cinematic level. Uh, it is a good watch, uh, even though it might be hard at times.
0: It's a very solid mystery, and that's. That's not necessarily something you could say about every single film noir, but it's definitely true of of this one. And it is. It's also true that Polanski and, and his uh, and his cinematographer really they find a way to evoke the noir aesthetic without doing it in the same way that the the classic noirs do you know lots of shots of, of shadowy interiors and you know the the Venetian blinds casting the shadows on people's faces you do get kind of those the, those shadow you know the sunlight coming in through the blinds and casting shadows those are still present they're not as they're not accentuated quite as much uh, in the same review that I quoted earlier from Roger Ebert he points out that uh, there's something about the cinematography that captures something quintessential about Los Angeles about the way that the you know when the characters are outside and they're wearing their fedoras the the sun's beating down on them and they're wearing their their fedoras kind of low on their heads so that their eyes are in shadow and the way that it looks on film is like they're they're almost like wearing masks like their eyes can't be seen and that's just almost all of the 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 men in this film are are like that, and it seems to again, uh, without putting too fine a point on it, it suggests this moral perspective that you know everybody is guilty in some way, and there you know no matter how good you want to be, you you there's you can never do enough to be good enough, and especially for for Christians watching this film, I mean that's that's in a way really explains why this film has such a despairing undertone to it, because you know, what, what does what Paul say? You know, what a wretched man I am because of that, that constant awareness of his own sinfulness. You get kind of a, a hint of that same sort of angst in the way that these characters are shot and the ways that, that they behave when they have realizations about uh, the, the true depths of depravity that, can take all sorts of different forms in this version of, of Chinatown.
1: Mm-hmm. I I like the the quote from Glenn Frankel. He talks about how this film emphasizes the fatal fragility of good intentions in an evil world, and it's it it's despairing. Uh, when I do watch this as a a Christian, I, I definitely I definitely emphasize with this keep your head down mentality. That the characters experience at the end of the film and what you, what you think uh, Nicholson is going to experience after this movie is over. That he will, for the rest of his life, just keep his head down, do his job, and not try to really stick his neck out for, for anybody. Um, uh, but that belief stems from this idea that justice can only be achieved here. And if it's not achieved here, well, then it's never achieved. Uh, and, and, and thinking about how that the universe uh, will ultimately, uh, because of, of Christ, produce true justice. And as a result, uh, we, we can go about trying to do good, even if ultimately uh, we, we mess up from time to time, or ultimately if it feels um, uh, futile, uh, we, can, we can go about doing that. So yeah, I, I like this swim a lot, and I'm glad to watch it again, because like I mentioned, uh, it, I feel like it was much better this this second time around.
0: I appreciated it a lot more on on this second viewing, myself. And I, you know, I, th- and I think that there's there's a reason why that that final line you know, forget it, Jake. It's ti- it's Chinatown. It's it's so famous, and I think part of the reason it is so famous is it it really just it, it's one of those film lines that just perfectly encapsulates what the film is about in that line. You, you get the, the perspective that what we've, you know, what we've been talking about that, you know, you can't really afford to be too good, that you, you just got to kind of keep your head down and make the best of a bad situation when it comes to the moral decay around us. And in one sense, you can totally understand why that is such a seductive philosophy. Uh, and just from the sheer by the end kind of horror of what Jake uncovers during his investigation. But there's also there's a ruefulness that almost feels comforting in a way. Kind of the sense that you're you're not alone in feeling adrift or in feeling this despair. Other people feel it too. And there's there's a strange, sad sort of comfort in that knowing that, you know, other people see Chinatown you know other people know what you know what goes on in the world and are as broken up about it as as you are that's it it captures both the the moral ambivalence of the film but also the the sadness at the heart of it just the fact that it's able to Fill those dual roles is is really remarkable, and again speaks to the strength of Robert Towne's screenplay.
1: Yeah, no, definitely, listeners. That's our review of Chinatown. If you have thoughts about this film or any other film noirs that you've seen, maybe something that we have not talked about, and you'd like to send your thoughts in on why it's an important film noir, let us know. See Believe Pod on Twitter. See Belief Pod. You can also email us. Seeing and believing. Capc at gmail.com. Oh, quick, we decided on Mulan next week, right? Is it okay if I mention that?
0: Uh, Yeah, yeah, Mulan. Okay. Yeah.
1: Listeners, that is the end of our show. Next week, we're going to be taking a look at Disney's Mulan, one of the bigger releases so far of 2020. It's going to be hitting Disney plus skipping the theatrical debut I don't know what to expect, Kevin. This is still a weird feeling, but uh, we're gonna watch a big blockbuster from home and uh, talk about it on the podcast next week.
0: Yeah, I mean, maybe part of that discussion can be whether this is whether something quintessential about the theatrical experience truly is missing when you try to watch <laughs> a blockbuster of that scale on your TV at home, or whether this is sort of the the death knell, like this is the the much foretold death of the theater going hmm. experience who knows uh so <laughs> definitely tune in next week to find out what we think about that yes
1: yes next week we're going to get down to business uh we're going to be talking about Mulan. thank you for listening to this week's episode it's brought to you by com. our producer is jonathan clausen who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen i'm wade bearden my co-host is kevin Mclennithan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. We'll see you later.
0: You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes and check out our other shows at com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.